This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're going to tour an unusual new apartment building in Denver that trauma helped design. What I mean is that many of its residents experienced abuse and other trauma when they were homeless. Making them feel safe influenced the architectural choices from the hallways to the bedrooms. I was abused when I was a child, and I left home when I was 13. This is Jerry, who lives in these new Sanderson apartments on South Federal. We agreed not to use his last name because a little later, he's going to share some very personal details about his life on the streets. These 60 apartments are for people who have been chronically homeless. They may struggle with addiction or have been in and out of jail. Jerry's been here since the building opened in August. You got everything you need. You got a microwave, you got a stove, (laughs) you got everything convenience at home. Let's get introduced to this concept of trauma-informed design on a tour with Joanne Tony. She's the head of residences for the Mental Health Center of Denver, which is behind this project. And the first place she led me was outdoors to an enclosed but airy patio. Since we work with people who are chronically homeless, we know that the outdoors is something they're used to, they're comfortable in. That's where they've lived. And so we intentionally designed this so that they could have that anytime they wanted it. That is to say that there may be people who are getting used to living indoors, perhaps permanently for the first time, And you needed to make sure that they had a place they could come with fresh air. And even if they feel more comfortable with a bedroll out here, they can sleep out here. Because they may not feel comfortable sleeping in a unit that they don't know is home yet. We head back inside to a long hallway on the first floor. This hallway does not look like a normal apartment hallway. It's not one solid line from here to the end. So the people we serve at the Sanderson Apartments, our residents here, can look down that hallway and establish their safety. It mitigates their anxiety. They know they're safe. They know they're home. I'm going to my door. There isn't anything scary in this hallway. I'm going to go right there. Because if you've got one long and dark hallway, it's tough often to see at the end and to kind of know what you're in for. Exactly. Are these residents sometimes wary of you? Absolutely. I think that people who should have had their best interests at heart at times have not. Since they're coming from homelessness, we know that something has not gone well for them. Openness is a theme here. If residents feel cooped up in their apartments, half of the building is made up of places they can comfortably hang out. A library, a gym, a TV room. And when they're ready for privacy, their furnished apartment is waiting for them. Tony says a big hit is a bucket of cleaning supplies they're given. There's just laundry stuff and stuff you mop the floor with. Stuff that not everybody would find great. Why do they find it great? I think they just haven't had something to clean, I think. The prospect of doing that is pretty exciting. I noticed the closets don't have doors. Neither do the kitchen cabinets. So these units were designed, if I stood at this door, you can see, I can see through the whole unit. We have a cutout in their bedroom so that they, if they're in their bedroom and they hear a noise outside or something, they can do kind of a visual look and I'm safe. They can look into the living room here. Exactly. Lights intentionally... If we opened up all these blinds, it would be very light in here. Joanne Tony hopes the idea of trauma-informed design will catch on. Let's hear more now from that resident, Jerry. We sit on his couch together. There's an ashtray on the coffee table. Folks are allowed to smoke in their apartments. It's the kind of autonomy they're given here. 
And behind us is a Harley-Davidson blanket pinned to the wall. He dreams of owning a motorcycle someday. You didn't have a roof over your head for decades then? No, I haven't. I never had a roof over my head. I never had my own place. I've always been up to see the way of street life, doing drugs you know, and alcohol. I was a hardcore addict for a long time. I got nine months clean off the heroin. Can you just tell me why abuse for you led to homelessness? Well, I was physically abused by my parents, and I just didn't feel I belonged, so I left. Have you moved around? Arizona, where from, but Texas, California, New York, Cincinnati. I've been all over the U.S. until I was 13, until I was about 22. Then I came to Colorado. I've been here ever since. So you've been here for decades? Yeah, I've been here almost 30 years. Where did you spend most nights? Just on the street, you know, just different places to sleep. You know, you find different places that are comfortable, where you can sleep at. But I moved around from place to place, so the law wouldn't mess with me. I never stayed in one spot too long. I'd camp out in one spot for two nights, and then I'd move on. Because you were anticipating law enforcement showing you away. Yeah, she telling me I had to leave. But the, the cops didn't really bother me. They were just doing their job. Do you remember when you first tried heroin? Yeah, I was 13 years old. So you were addicted to that drug for most of your life? Yes. And it ruined my life. How? Well, I didn't get, I didn't get an education. I'm, I'm, I'm intelligent. I do, a lot, I do a lot of reading. I always have. But the thing is, is I grew up by getting my education on the streets. Because, you know, being street smart, getting, I educated myself with books. What does it mean to be street smart? What are the kinds of things you've got to learn? Well, survival. You know, when you're on the streets, it's rough. It's not easy. A lot of people don't realize just how hard it is. When you're out there on the streets, you know, it's a lot of times it's a life or death situation. What are some of the tools that you developed to make it? You know, respect for other people. You know, when you're on, when you're on the streets, you're just, you know, just getting along because they're out, you know, you look after each other the best you can. You make friends with people that are homeless. Thing is, is you become, you pretty much become a family looking after each other. So you've done some jail time, huh? Yeah, I've done prison time, jail time. I've been in and out of jails and institutions since I was a kid. So in that way, there was a roof over your head, but I don't imagine that feels like home. No, I don't. This does. Do you think having a roof over your head has helped your sobriety? Oh, yeah. Immensely. Because I'm away from it. I'm away from the drugs and alcohol. You're away from the temptation. Yeah, exactly. What do you do when you want heroin? Well, I don't really want it anymore. I don't, I don't really think about it. But whenever I have problems, I talk to somebody. What do you see for the future? I don't really look to the future. I just live day by day. Still do. I know that that's really important sometimes when you're trying to get sober. One day at a time, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's all you can do is take it one day at a time. Sometimes take one minute at a time. What do you want for yourself? I was on a roof over my head. <laughs> you know? I got that. Have you been in shelters at all? No, I won't stay in shelters. They're disgusting. They're dirty. You found it cleaner to actually stay? To sleep outside. Why? Oh, people bring in all this stuff. They bring in bed bugs and everything else, and you get bit up. No, no. It's disgusting. How did you survive the coldest nights? I, I often wonder that in the winter, especially if you're not in a shelter. Surviving the cold's easy. It's not that hard. Cardboard's a wonderful thing. <laughs> Cardboard holds in the heat. 
refrigerator boxes are really big, you know, stuff like that, and they're really thick. So you'd find a box for refrigerators, and that was big enough to sleep in? Yeah. Refrigerator boxes, uh, the disposable cup boxes are really big. What about food? How did you stay fed? I fly a sign. You fly a sign? What does that mean? It's a sign you hold up, says something on it. So you would beg for food? Yeah, pretty much. Well, I didn't really beg for food because my sign says, I bet you Bucky reads this, ha ha. People did, and then they gave you a dollar. Yeah. yeah. Is that how you afforded drugs, too? Oh, yeah. I'd panhandle, I'd fly a sign. Yeah. You talked about having developed friendships uh, on the streets, almost like a family. Are those people you're still connected to? Do you miss aspects of that life? I miss some of it, but thing is, is the, the, the majority of it I don't miss at all. I've got new friends here, too, being here at Sanderson House. The staff here is wonderful. They're really good people. What do you miss about your previous life? Just staying with my friends, you know, camping out with them, talking at night, you know, stuff like that. Do you miss the outside? Kind of. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I stay out all night just to walk around. Even with this apartment? Yeah. It's a life I got used to. It's, just a, it's like I still see some of my friends. I camp out with them still once in a while. What made the best sleeping spots? I think about that too. Like it's such a vulnerable thing to be asleep outdoors. You know, where did you find the places that you felt safe enough to close your eyes? We get used to sleeping very light. You know, you don't sleep very heavy. And you hear, you hear certain noises, you wake up. Do you sleep more soundly now? No, I don't. <laughs> to be honest, I have insomnia. I, I never slept that well. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us, Jerry. I really appreciate it and for having us in your new apartment. Thank you. You're welcome. Jerry, who used to be homeless, lives in the new Sanderson Apartments in Denver. They were designed with residents' past trauma in mind. It's the largest supportive housing project for the Mental Health Center of Denver. You can see photos from our tour at CPR.org. Top Chef is the Emmy-winning show in which chefs go head-to-head, and this season their battleground is Colorado. By the sounds of this promo, there will be no shortage of drama. There's something inside of us that makes us want to cook. Now that's a fire. But the better chefs, they go on a journey. (laughs) Flex those abs, (laughs) y'all. In season 15 of the Bravo TV series, contestants draw inspiration from all over this state. As they were filming here, I caught up with Top Chef judge Graham Elliott. Graham, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. And welcome to Colorado. Why why film this season in Colorado? You know, I think that Colorado, it's uh, it's kind of this mix, right? It's capturing the culinary zeitgeist with what's going on and, and back to nature and great local stuff. And you have the Denver cityscape with a lot of great, you know, chefs coming and doing good stuff and, and people that are very open to cool food. But on the, on the same token, you've got the mountains, you've got the woods, you've got, you know, uh, lakes and streams and all of that nature that chefs like to work with. So I think it's a, a no-brainer to come out here and do this. Okay, so it sounds like part of the reason you're here is the, the locavora movement and how focused uh, many chefs in Colorado are on sourcing their ingredients close to home. 
Yeah, and when you look at what Top Chef's done over, you know, the past 15 seasons, you've got different cities that have their own, you know, feeling and, and sense of place, whether it's Chicago, New Orleans, last year was Charleston. And I think with Colorado, it's it's the whole state because, you know, there's so many different little micro areas that you can hit that, that have its own feel. Yeah, I understand that you're going to be in Denver, Boulder, and Telluride, and you've got chefs competing who are from Boulder. One, I think, is from Colorado Springs. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, we've got two uh, Colorado natives, and we're also going to be uh, heading up to Aspen as well. So trying to hit a lot of different spots. Can you tell us about these chef chef testants um, from Colorado? Um, yeah. You know, what what's interesting with them is that they bring their, their own style, which I think reflects the environment here in Colorado. So you're using, you know, local things, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, elk and lamb and ingredients like that, but also... Uh, some Latin or, or Southwest-inspired ingredients to uh, to pair with their food. And it really shows that they have their own style. It's not someone in Colorado that's trying to make food that looks like it's straight out of New York City or, you know, somewhere, uh, you know, out of Copenhagen, like at, at Noma, which yeah. is always refreshing. Uh, okay, Noma, that's the restaurant where they serve, like, lichen and stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I wonder if you've been out and about on the culinary scene while you've been in Colorado and if you might share some of your experiences. Yeah, you know, I think so far I've uh, I've been to the kitchen where the chef Merlin Verrier is actually one of my best friends and former chef in Chicago. So he is a transplant out here and loving it. Went to uh, Acorn. Uh, my brother actually lives in, in Boulder, so we hit a couple local spots over there. What's great is that there's there's nobody really putting on airs and, and thinking of themselves as, you know, the, the the greatest restaurant in the world. So there's a lot of ego that's set aside, which I find refreshing here. But mm. uh, I went to a place called Sassafras uh, that was doing great breakfast. And, you know, they, they didn't recognize who I was, but they knew that I was taking pictures and excited. So they sent out some extra stuff and were very friendly and offering a lot of insight into the dishes and you know, I remember having like, you know, their biscuits and gravy and, and you know, all the uh, the sweet potato grits and things like that. So it was Southern inspired food, but still using a lot of stuff from around here. So that was cool. Yeah. Sweet potato grits. That sounds amazing. Yeah, right. You talk about Colorado's forests and its lakes and its streams. And yet I have a hard time kind of typifying a, like Colorado cuisine. You know, if you ask me to name a Colorado dish, maybe I'd say trout? I don't know. Or maybe I'd say elk. What What would you say? You know, what's funny is there may or may not be something on the show that, that has to do with that. <laughs> with, <laughs> with something that will represent the state as far as a dish. So I can't comment too heavily on, on what I feel would represent it. But it's funny when, like if I say Chicago, which is where I'm from, hmm. everyone immediately thinks deep dish pizza or some kind of hot dog which you can't get away from that. And I think when you say Colorado, people will, will shoot out, you know, Rocky Mountain oysters, even though I'm guessing that you don't wake up every day in, in Denver, Aspen, and say, like, <laughs> I need my Rocky Mountain oysters now. But you're never going to get away from that. You know, like you said, trout or, or Colorado lamb, we use Colorado lamb in our restaurant, um, you know, elk and game. You know, but it's only going to take a matter of time until a few chefs go out, forage, find certain things, and then create, like, this is the movement. This is Colorado, you know, which, again, I think is is on the verge of happening where you have, you know, New Orleans, you think of New Orleans, you know it's food. Like, you go to Portland, Oregon, you know what they do. Mm. Um, 
And I think that that Colorado now has all these chefs, and it's like re- you know ready to burst and to where you close your eyes and you know exactly what food you're gonna be expecting in Colorado. Rocky Mountain oysters, of course, are bull testicles. And have you have you had those? I did. I had them the other day. We uh, all the judges, Gail, Padma, Tom, and I, we were at uh, Coors Field watching the Rockies game and went and tried a bunch of the the little snacks there in the ballpark and got to try those. What'd you think? You know, I've had them before, and I'm pretty convinced that, you know, if you deep fry something enough, it could be a boot, it could be a watch, or a hockey <laughs> mat, it doesn't matter, you're going to be able to eat it. So, okay, yeah, they were nice and fried and crunchy. That was not a ringing endorsement of Rocky Mountain oysters, <laughs> Graham Elliott. No, but here's the thing. If, if they're done as like a kitschy, goofy little thing, it's one thing. But when you think that cuisine is based on any culture doing the best with what it has, that's something else. So if you... You know, had somebody that had maybe more uh, disposable income that was buying the rack, you know, and and the sirloin and all these things, and then somebody else didn't have anything and they were given the testicles, the fact that you can poach them, slice them, hit them with a little flour, breadcrumb, saute them in brown butter, like now that's gorgeous, that's beautiful, that's cuisine, right? Like yeah. nobody in the South in Charleston said, I feel like going and eating a bunch of pig's feet, you know, and pickled eggs right now. That sounds great. It's like that's what they had. Mm. So it's no different than than out here. May I share with you two pieces of Colorado culinary trivia? I, I, I'm wondering if this would be news to share you. with me or test me. Um, oh, share with you. Don't you. share trivia. Uh, that's really? true. That's true. Okay. 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 All right. Share with me some trivia now. Sure. I'll share with you some trivia. Did you know that Elvis's favorite sandwich was uh, made in Colorado? I do know that. You know why? Because I was in Graceland. And I heard the story of how at like one in the morning or something, he was really bored and told all his friends, like, let's get on the plane and fly to Colorado. Yes. To get yes. the sandwich. This is the peanut like, butter. Out of nowhere. And, yeah. The peanut butter and banana <laughs> sandwich. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Which is huge, by the way. It's like, a, I think, a pound of bacon peanut butter. That's what I heard. Yeah. And then the Denver omelet. Do you, do, you, do you know that there's a marker in downtown Denver uh, that, that celebrates the Denver omelet? I did not know that. Okay. Maybe so. But now what do you think about like Denver omelet is like that same kind of Rocky Mountain oyster thing where somehow you could be at like the, the most lame, you know, hotel in an airport in the middle of like Boise, Idaho, and you know they're serving a Denver omelet. <laughs> like, do you think that that perfectly captures the spirit of Colorado and well, Denver? The story behind it is that it was a way, apparently, to kind of bring back old eggs. So you put, you know, bell pepper. Uh, again, n- you thought that my Rocky Mountain Oysters wasn't a ringing endorsement? <laughs> you talking about the, they called it this so that you could bring back eggs? That, that sounds like some kind of seance, like bring back the eggs from the dead kind of thing. <laughs> Um, it's been really fun chatting. Um, what would you say you're most looking forward to this season? Oh, man. Um, you know, I, I love sports. So being able to do something, you know, with uh, uh, with the Broncos or with the Rockies, uh, you know, checking out some of that, cooking in the iconic spots like, um, you know, Larimer Square and, uh, you know, areas like that. I think that's what I love. You know, it's one thing to just go to a fancy restaurant and say, okay, you guys got to cook in here and make something. I, I enjoy the other side where it's okay. Let's get out in front of the public and really enjoy that energy that everybody has. Graham, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. I appreciate uh, you guys letting me be on. Chef Graham Elliott is a judge on the popular Bravo TV show Top Chef, which filmed its new season in Colorado. It premieres December 7th. Technically, Bill Frizzell is a jazz guitarist, but it's better to think of him as a musical shapeshifter. One minute, he's putting his spin on a Thelonious Monk tune. 
The next, it's a country classic by Hank Williams. Frizzell grew up in Colorado, went to East High School in Denver, and tomorrow night at the Paramount Theater, he'll be inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. He's part of a class called Jazz and Beyond that includes Diane Reeves, Ron Miles, Charles Burrell, and members of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Bill Frizzell is also the subject of a new documentary. It's called Bill Frizzell, A Portrait. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Congratulations as well. Uh, jazz and beyond, that seems like a good description of your own music. Uh, is that how you think of it? Uh, you know, I really don't. I've, I'm always asked, what do you call this or what? It, mm-hmm. I just, it's so, words just don't work so well trying to, I'm not really into boxing the music in with all these descriptions, you know. I'm starting to think that maybe I should stop asking this question (laughs) as an interviewer because mostly what I hear from musicians is frustration at the idea of being labeled or boxed in. So uh, thank you for helping contribute. No, no, it's it's (laughs) all along, it's music has been this place for me where just anything is possible. You know, thinking back, what's happening, you know, of course all these memories are coming back to me now, thinking, growing up here and, my whole life, music has been the place where anything was possible, and there there weren't these boundaries. So every time we, it seems like sometimes the descriptions of it always tend to box it in, or it it has a way of excluding. If you call it one thing, then people think, well, if it's that, then it can't. It be. can't be something else. And it's your so, first album, In Line, came out in 1983. And since then, you've recorded dozens more as a band leader. Uh, You've also collaborated with a number of non-jazz artists. Uh, Impressive list. Bonnie Raitt, Elvis Costello, Sean Colvin, Ricky Lee Jones, Lucinda Williams, Paul Simon. In fact, here you are with Paul Simon earlier this year on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert performing Questions for the Angels. A pilgrim on a pilgrimage Walked across the Brooklyn Bridge His sneakers torn In the hour when the homeless Move their cardboard blankets And a new day is born What do you think it is about your guitar playing that fits so well with the music of singer-songwriters like Paul Simon? Um... Well, I've always, that's, it's wild that you play this because that was, you know, that goes way back to the beginning of, you know, Simon and Garfunkel was one of those. I remember taking lessons at the Denver Folklore Center when it was over on East 17th and asking if my teacher could teach me a Simon and Garfunkel song. So sometimes I think, I'm wow, I must be dreaming. I'm Now I'm playing with. Paul Simon, but you're living a dream. I think I, I am really, and but it's always been about just listening. I don't really change what I 
do from whoever I'm playing with or whatever the context. I'm not, I don't have to shift what I'm doing. It's, I'm using the same instincts and basically just, I'm just listening and. In that moment, are you in some ways trying to match the the voice, the literal voice of Paul Simon? Are you trying to more tap into the the thought behind the song? What are you paying yeah. attention to? Well, yeah, there's so many things. They're, they're the words and then the sound of his voice or the the harmony. And you just sort of, it's like, diving into the ocean and you're just you're in there and and I'm just swimming around with it I guess it's it, paying attention to a whole bunch of different cues yeah and and, and and but you can't be it's like you're paying attention but you can't think too much if you start uh-huh. thinking about it, <laughs> it 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 sort of blocks the I know, you know, one of my heroes, Sonny Rollins, said, you know, music is, it's something like you can't think when you're playing because it's, it, things are happening too fast. It's, if you start thinking, it'll, it, it, it cuts off the communication sometimes. So. It's a bit how my dad talks about his golf swing. I don't oh, know. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I hate to to compare your brilliance to my dad's golf no, swing. No, no, it's it's like you, you keep all these things in mind. You pay attention to all of these things. And then in the moment you forget them. Yeah. yeah. It's like if you were driving a car, if you were thinking about every little calculation you were making, you'd be like, you'd drive off the road. Yeah. Paul Simon is among those interviewed for the documentary film, Bill Frizzell, A Portrait, which actually screens tonight in Denver at the Sea Film Center. Uh, you and the director, Emma Franz, will take part in a Q&A after the screening. And here's a little from Paul Simon. Well, I'm a fan of Bill Frizzell's music for a lot of reasons, you know, but mostly it's it's his sense of tone and the way he mixes color, different forms of music that he combines, world music, a unique kind of Americana that's really Bill Frizzell, and of course he's a great modern jazz player. The film shows you at home and on stage in different musical settings. For someone who travels the world and performs constantly, I have to say you don't seem entirely comfortable with the spotlight on you. Did you have to be convinced to be the subject of a documentary? Um, well, not it, it, it happened so kind of casually. You know, I, I was in Austin Tech, like I was in a club in Austin playing and I walked off the stage and there was Emma who I'd never, I think actually I had met her briefly at some point, but I didn't, I didn't know who she was. And she was there in Austin for a film festival presenting her previous film. And somehow she had the, I think it was really at that moment, she had the idea to do something with me. And I'm thinking, well, why would you, why me or what's so interesting about that? But I just, it was sort of a, I just said, sure, if you, sure, if you want. <laughs> and then, you, it sounds like you were a bit perplexed as to why you might be the subject of it. Y- yeah. Which it speaks seems, to a certain humility about you, Bill Frizzell. Well, but I don't know. I mean, when I think, it, it I, I still think, you know, it could have been, 
what I I appreciate what she was after was she was looking at the process that a musician or an artist goes through to get to where to get their music out or get their dreams out there some you know make things she was looking at that more than Bill Frizzell in particular you you, you saw this in a way as a portrait of the artist's way of the, the artist yeah and, and so it just happened to be me i guess and and i said okay and then i had i didn't realize what i was getting myself into cuz then very soon after that she started following me around like she'd <laughs> show up at my house or on a tour or at i think one of the first things actually i was playing in telluride colorado and she was there and 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 that started that went on for you know, I don't really understand the pro- how you make a film. But you, in other words, had uh, a detail for some time, a film detail on on you, on your tracks. And uh, one <laughs> yeah. thing that I love that comes out in this documentary is that you own many guitars. And at several points in the film, you express regret that you can't play more than one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> it's as if you wish you had eight arms, I suppose. Or, yeah. That you can't take all of the guitars you own on the road with you, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I'm jealous of, you know, the big... I see these big bands, you know, with a big trailer truck filled with all their stuff. and But I'm just traveling around, you know, with... I'm with my band and my friends, and but I carry one guitar with me. And then at home, I have this big pile of them that's sitting there waiting for me when I get back. I want to talk about your early years in Denver. Um, you were still in high school when you began studying guitar in Denver with Dale Bruning, yeah, who's now yeah. 83. And years later, actually, you recorded an album with him called Reunion. Why don't we hear the track Round Midnight? Oh, wow. Westward years ago, that you can't overstate the importance of Dale Bruning in your life. But I understand that you began playing clarinet, not guitar. Yeah, and in, in I'm again, I'm so I just can't believe how lucky I am. Or thinking the the music program here, and it seems to be still going strong. Where whereas some other places the music program in the public school seems to be the first thing to go but in fourth grade they came around and asked if you wanted to play an instrument and my father at the time well clarinet's a good instrument why don't you play that so in fourth grade I entered into the music I was at Teller Elementary School and then Gove Junior High and East High and I played clarinet all through during that time and that's really where I got the the, just the most basic fundamental music training, you know, and 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 how did guitar come into your life? Well, then that was just a few years. I mean, I always was fascinated with the guitar for as long as I since 
watching the Mickey Mouse Club on TV and then, <laughs> you know, surf music and all that. It, I was always fascinated with it. And it was just a couple of years after that that, you know, my friend across the street had a guitar and I would sort of fiddle around with that. And so I was about, I guess I was about 12 years old when I first got one. And, but that was a complete, like the, the clarinet was more this formal study where I, my parents made me practice and I, it was more intellectual where the guitar was, that was my way of, that was my social life. You know, that music that I played with the guitar was, that's where my friends were. And that's, I was just. I was dry. You didn't have to tell me to practice. And it, right. It didn't feel like work. Not at all. Of course, all. that's that's where so many young people get turned off on instruments, is that it feels like work. And it's not the thing that's associated with your friends. And it's the thing that's sort of apart. So I'm yeah. guessing that that is in part what led you to a, a lifelong love affair with yeah, it's the been, guitar. It really feels the same now as when I, the first time I picked it up, it, that's, I'm still that feeling is still with me. It's oh, I love that. After all these years. Uh, so as I mentioned, you're being inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame tomorrow night, along with Denver cornetist Ron Miles. You've recorded and performed together often, yeah. including a 2014 album called Circuit Rider, which also featured Brian Blade on drums. Here's the title track. I spoke with Ron Miles when that album came out, and I asked him why you two are so in sync musically, and here's what he said. Well, in some ways, it's kind of like, I always describe it as like taking a picture with Tyra Banks or something. Everyone says, you two look beautiful together. It's like, you know, it's like she's so beautiful, you can look like anything, and Bill's that way too. I mean, he plays so great that you play something and he makes it sound much better than you ever dreamed it could sound. He's a supreme accompanist and a supreme soloist. But I think both of us like a lot of different kinds of music, respect music. Both of us, I think, are, are melodic improvisers and, and people who are dedicated to really improvising, to not just falling back on patterns or licks, but trying to be as spontaneous and in the moment as we can. Does that ring true? For, first of all, <laughs> you ever been compared to Tyra Banks? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... Wow. That was nice. But no, I, I'd have to say the same... Everything he said, I have to say right back to him. Like, being a supreme accompanist is the way I think of, which is not what you would think of as a, a trumpet player. Being, yeah. But he he's so inside the music and so supportive. Everything he plays makes me sound better. And so I'd have to just throw that all right back at him. <laughs> I'll mention that Ron Miles has a new album, I Am a Man, and you're one of the musicians on it. Uh, you and Ron both went to East High School, though not at the same time. In fact, East is being honored tomorrow night by yeah. the Colorado Music Hall of Fame for its rich musical heritage. 
You actually performed at East several years ago after the release of your album Guitar in the Space Age, which was a collection of pop songs from the 1960s. This is great stuff. Here's Baja. It was originally done by a Denver surf band. Who knew Denver had a surf band? The Astronauts. Briefly, do you have fond memories of East? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Really very fond. I mean, I wasn't a great student or, and, uh, but no, looking back, I feel like it, I was so lucky to be in that, those circumstances at that time, like also being inducted into this thing or, or Larry Dunn and Philip Bailey and Andrew Wolfolk who went on to be with Earth, Wind, and Fire. I was. They, we were all in school together. Yeah, and, Earth, Wind, and Fire, right? And just the atmosphere in that place was. I didn't realize even till years later what we had there. You know, this coming together of all these people. Bill, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Guitarist Bill Frizzell will be inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame tomorrow night. It's taking place at the Paramount Theater, and a new documentary about him screens tonight at the Sea Film Center in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the wee small hours of the morning, poet Matthias Felina gets out of bed, he hops on his bike, and goes door-to-door dropping off short poems. He calls this the Dream Delivery Service. Well, this month he's been making stops at a couple of boutique hotels in downtown Denver. They requested his poetic services. I spoke with Svelina last year. Welcome to the program, Matthias. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Is it true that this whole thing started as a joke? <laughs> I think like most things in my life, this started as a joke. Uh, I had to figure out what I was doing for a summer and thought, well, maybe I can trick people into subscribing so I'll deliver dreams to them every day. And then the next morning I woke up and thought, well, maybe I actually can. <laughs> so was it an economic driver? Like you were thinking, how can I get people to pay for my art? Yeah, it was a, as a... As a poet, they're probably not surprised that poetry is not the most lucrative of the arts. Um, I was trying to figure out a way to uh, pay bills based on poetry. I mean, I have traveled before. I think it was in Europe somewhere. Um, I had someone come up to me and say, I will write you a poem for (laughs) whatever it was in euros. Yeah. So in a way, this is kind of systematizing that idea, I guess. Uh, You write these dreams in the surrealist style, sort of removed from typical logic or rationale. And I'd like to have you read from a dream that you wrote that was actually addressed to me. (laughs) So this is my dream. Go ahead. Sure. All the dreams are in second person. You're at a funeral, and after the ceremony ends, two men in dour suits wheel the casket into the center of the room. 
People walk in with folding chairs and arrange them around the casket. The mourners sit at the casket, and a long covered tray, as long as the casket itself, is set atop the casket. Everyone prepares to eat, arranging their napkins, sipping at their glasses of water. You're visibly unnerved and do not sit down. One of the other mourners, the deceased's cousin, you think, is his name Harvey, notices this. He says, oh, this is just how we do it around here. Please join us. He offers you the seat next to him, and you take it, not wanting to offend. How did this idea of a coffin feast, lunch meets, (laughs) at a (laughs) casket, occur to you? I have no idea. Uh, So I write, I try to write 40 of these a day. I try to write a unique dream for every subscriber. And as I'm writing, I'm sort of lost in this dream logic of my own. So I... I only remember this because you put it in front of me. Mm. I would not remember it normally. And I don't remember how the ideas come to me, really. That's a sort of trance experience. You don't have to answer this, but are you sober when you do this? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Other than very sleep-deprived, I'm sober. Dream logic. Say Mm -hmm. more about that. Uh, I mean, if we think about the reality logic where things happen and we have to deal with them and we have to respond to them and make sense of them, That's not what happens in a dream. And I think that's the heart of surrealism, too, is that strange things happen and we just enjoy the strangeness without making sense of them. Mm. And in a dream, you know, the casket can be wheeled up and then you can eat at the casket and everyone's having a great time. Right. No one's saying, isn't that a little strange? Right. Right. Yeah. Strange is at the heart of it. So then just more meaning and more event kind of happens out of it. Do your own dreams ever influence the dreams you write for others? It's funny. I rarely remember my dreams, actually. Mm. So uh, in the rare moments that I do recall something from a dream, it'll probably go straight in because I need fodder. I just need stuff when I'm writing these. I don't remember my dreams much either. I'm really jealous of people who do. Yeah, me too. You feel that? Yeah. I'm always the person who actually wants to hear people's dreams. Uh, well, in that case, you hear dreams from friends <laughs> and then integrate them into the ones you deliver. I do. I warn them that I'm going to steal them, but I steal them. Yeah. <laughs> your, right. Your dreams may be published, in other words. <laughs> so as we said, you'll be up before sunrise. Mm-hmm. You ride your bike to deliver dreams onto subscribers' doorsteps. Once you complete your deliveries, you go to a coffee shop and you sit there for hours writing dreams for the next day. Yep. Um, you had about 45 subscribers when you did this last time. Is it hard to write so many different dreams and to make them... Well, do they have to be different? Would you give someone the same dream? If I don't get up to 40 in a day, uh, people sometimes dream the same dream. Okay. So they double up. (laughs) Uh, On a good day, I get to 40 and I'm just sort of in a zone where I can continue writing these little narratives and churn them out and not look back. And then sometimes other things happen and life gets in the way and or I'm out of creative juice and uh, I don't quite get all 40 written. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with poet Matthias Svelina, who has a dream delivery service. Doesn't that sound just lovely? <laughs> and, and what do you know people to do with their dreams once they're delivered? I don't know. I, I, it's sort of beyond me. I've heard people who just wake up and find them on their doorstep and read them, and it kind of enters into some sort of uh, psychic zone like a dream does, and a little memory, a little event. Some people are traveling, and so come back home, and there's a big stack of these little pink envelopes waiting for them. And they, I had one friend who was a subscriber in Alaska who was 
actually on the North Pole for the entire time of the dream delivery and had a stack of them and had a party and had his friends kind of hand them around and read them all, hmm. all at once. And share them with friends then. Yeah. This is not a free service. You charge $40 a month for hand delivery, a postage fee for out-of-towners. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you put a price on something like this? I don't know. <laughs> 40 seemed... Uh, it seems reasonable, but you know, you go into a gallery sometimes <laughs> and you think that painting should not be ten thousand yeah. dollars. You could, you know, who knows? Why? Why, why aren't dreams four hundred dollars? I've had artist friends tell me, like, you know, you should be charging like five hundred dollars for this. But <laughs> I want it to be accessible. Uh, I want it to be a strange kind of experience for somebody who wants to sort of read a a book like thing over the course of a month. Hmm. Um, so I want it to be relatively affordable, but also worth the amount of time I put in since I put in about 20 hours a day when I'm doing it. You also offer, for an additional charge, <laughs> nightmares. Yeah. And, and nightmares cost an extra three seventy five a month. <laughs> yeah. Can we hear a section of a nightmare before I ask you about why nightmares are more expensive? <laughs> sure. Um, you're on the U.S. volleyball team, but you're late for the first match of the Olympics, and you can't find the stadium. It is so hot the streets are gooey and stick to your feet with every step. The tar covers your ankles and calves with a suffocating grip. And just when it seems like you'll never find the stadium, finally, you find the stadium. There's a long, dark tunnel you must walk through to enter, the distant light a pinprick. You hear what you think is the ocean, but as you progress, you realize it is the loud resounding of a stadium full of booze. Mm. You enter the stadium and the seats are full of angry, red-faced, booing men. In the middle of the stadium, you see a large dog with an enormous head. He's chewing the shoes you just bought. You haven't even gotten a chance to wear these shoes. You feel terrible. But then the crowd notices you, and they begin to boo even louder. It's like one of those anxiety dreams in which you've <laughs> gone to high school naked and forgotten that you you know, were supposed to be in class or something. Yeah, that's a classic. Why are nightmares more expensive than dreams? What a strange pricing structure. <laughs> I did it as a joke. It never occurred to me people would order them. Uh, so I thought it was just funny to charge $3.75 more for nightmares. And then people ordered them. Uh, what, what is but the... they actually are harder to write than dreams. Oh, they are? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think the thing that is scary in a nightmare is rarely the narrative. It's the tone. It's the atmosphere. It's the way an image, uh, you know, triggers or resounds for a person. So sometimes it can be like, you know, there is a bucket in the middle of the uh, of the street, but it's really scary, you know, and that doesn't make for a very good piece of writing. Mm, so there's, in a way, there's a little bit more crafting that has to happen with a nightmare. Yeah. What is the balance right now between nightmare and dreams subscribers? Majority dreams. Majority dreams. Yeah. All right. That Somehow that makes me feel good about humanity. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It's strange to send, drop off these little yeah, bummer, scary experiences for people every day. Do you sleep much? I mean, it sounds like <laughs> when you're operating the dream delivery service, it's not terribly conducive to normal hours. No, I, I'm pretty prone to insomnia to begin with. And then uh, during these months, I usually sleep four hours or less a day. And on the other hand, I, I get to do the things that I love most in life, which is bike around the city when it's empty, write all day long, and be weird without consequence. So. You compose these on a computer and then you delete the files. Yeah. Uh, up until this year, I've deleted all of them at the end of the month. So the only thing that continues to exist is the little slips of paper that people get. The ephemeral nature, I suppose, makes makes for a certain beauty. I hope so. I want it to be cryptic and ephemeral. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you.
Poet Matthias Felina, we spoke last year. This month, he's been delivering dreams to guests at the Maven and Oxford Hotels in downtown Denver. A little more from Bill Frizzell here. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.